Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Let me start off. I'm going to just go ahead and read through kind of the teaching text this morning, and then we'll kind of go from there. So we're in Matthew 2, 1. It should sound familiar. Uh, Corbin, a couple weeks ago, also talked about kind of the same section of Scripture. Focusing on the Magi, I'm going to have a different little focus this week. So starting in verse 1, chapter 2 of Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, uh, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Jerusalem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod came to the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose uh, when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw a child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasure and pre- presented with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another way. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that there had been had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years uh, old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Let me pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, Lord, that you stepped into this world to a particular time and place. You made changes. You did something that was miraculous. So, Lord, I ask that you'd be here this morning. You'd be in our hearts. That you're the one that, Lord, that moves through us. You're the one that changes us. Let us become more like you. In your name, amen. So I was basically told, as you get older, especially males, you get really two choices of interest. You can either get interested in cooking meat or history. Lucy, like, military history. I, that's, my, that's my choices I get to go. Uh, so we're going to look at a lot of history this morning. So I imagine there's a small percentage of you that really love this. Um, hopefully what I can do is make it a little more interesting. But I think it's really important that we look at this idea where, when it says, like, in the time of King Herod, 
Um, I'm going to focus on King Herod quite a bit. Um, we're uh, last week focused kind of on Mary, and Mary's much more pleasant to look at than King Herod, but he's part of the story. And so we have this idea that in the time of King Herod, uh, I want to mention, like, so in Luke 2, is another part of the uh, Bethlehem story or the story of Jesus' birth. Um, Luke, the gospel that, uh, there, focuses on Caesar Augustus. But in Matthew, it focuses on Herod. And part of that due to the idea of, so Matthew is much more focused on uh, a Jewish audience. So much more of those that wrote, uh, read it at the beginning are very more Jewish. Um, and so we focus on the Jews. So Herod was a Jew. So the question is, where did Herod come from? Because we look at this idea that Jesus walked into, not walked, he was born into this world at a certain time, at a certain place. And there are things going on in the world around them that he became part of right away. And so again, you read through the story, this idea of like, okay, there's this guy, this King Herod, that wants to kill off the Messiah. Like there's something, why would this king want to do that? What is, in the, what is Jesus stepping into as he is born? One of the teachers I really like, he talks about the world in two different ways. He talks about two kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of empire and the kingdom of shalom. And so we see Jesus, that he comes to the world to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of shalom. But he steps into the world of empire. And we're going to get to know what that empire looks like here in a second. So go ahead and bring the map I have up here. And so, so we're starting with Herod's dad was governor of right below Judah, Idumea. So this area is very popular. Um, there's a lot of trade routes going on. It really wants to be, uh, be ruled. And so we have Herod's dad. He's this governor of Idumea. And so go ahead and bring the timeline up. So in 73 BC, Herod was born. So Herod was born when his, his father was uh, this governor of that area. So in 63 BC, there is a Roman general, Pompey, that came and conquered Israel. And guess who supported this general? Herod's dad. So this starts off, Herod's family is tied to Rome. And it specifically changes everything for Israel. And so because of, uh, of Herod's death supporting Pompey, what happens was that Herod is now granted to become governor of Judea. So Judea is where uh, Jerusalem is, is where Bethlehem is. It's a very important part of the Jewish world going on right there. And so in 47 BC, when, um, after Herod's father becomes governor of Judah, Herod's father goes, okay, now my son, he's about 25 years old, now will become governor of Galilee. And Herod starts making these connections. Please he plays this amazing, actually, political game. And he gains favor among some really important people in the Roman society. Enough so, like Mark Anthony promotes him to even a better place in kind of the, in the, in the gives him like a new title that's even better. He gets more and more power. When we look at this, Herod through his life is going to get more and more power. And so what happens, though, is a big, uh, in 40 BC, so Rome's control of Jerusalem, in 40, 40 BC, the Parthians invade and take over Jerusalem. And then Herod flees to, flees to Rome. So Herod gets in front of the leaders of Rome and like, hey, this is your area. Like, this was taken from you. And remember, this area is really important because so much trade is going on. There's so much money to be made there. 
and the Romans, Romans thought, this is a good idea. We need to take it back. And they made Herod king of the Jews. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Herod, king of the Jews. It was pretty normal, normal for Roman society, like when they conquered an area, to promote someone as king. And so that king basically had two responsibilities. One was to have control, so make sure there's no uprisings, like no one's going to come and take over the land that Rome had. So any revolts that happened within the area, that king was responsible for stopping it. And usually it means killing off a bunch of people. And the other responsibility that the king had was to get taxes. Because it is, it's all about money. So Rome functioned because of all the taxes they collected from all these places they conquered. So the king had those two responsibilities, control and taxes. So Herod gets that responsibility. The only problem right now is the Parthians control this land. So Herod spends the next three years basically getting rid of the Parthians out of Israel and retaking it for Rome. Rome loves Herod. He's smart. He's really known as a a strategist in the military. He's brilliant, and he's brutal. He is so brutal. He's already known in Rome. Like, Rome honors that. Rome loves that. And so, in 37 BC, Herod's military campaign is completed. So he's won them over. Now he's in charge, and it's him. And now there's no one else to conquer because he's only responsible for this one area. And he goes, okay, now what? Now what do I want to do? Well, I want the world to know who I am. Not the world even currently, but those in the future. I want them to let them know who I am. And so what Herod does is starts making this amazing, like it's, his building campaign is like par none. I don't know if anybody in history has ever done what he has done when it comes to his building campaign. He had building campaigns all over the Middle East, all over Israel. So I kind of want to focus on a few of them, and one um, in particular, and I'll kind of explain why here in a sec, second, but just understand like how brilliant Herod, Herod was. And so one of the places that, when you look at Israel, Israel didn't have like a harbor or a port, and since Israel is known for trade, it's really like, oh, okay, this would be brilliant to be able to have some place for the ships to come in and take goods. And along the, the coast, is usually you need like natural formation to have a harbor, because you need this area of rock to protect, you know, from storms and everything else going on. So Herod goes, well, we don't have one, so I'm just going to make one. And he came up with this way to, like, pour concrete into the water that actually hardened under the water. It took a long time for even us nowadays to figure out what the heck that he did. So he made this, like, 50-acre port that housed, like, 300 ships. Like, it was an amazing feat of engineering that he did. That's one of the things he did. Another thing he did, he went to uh, the temple. So in Jerusalem was the, the temple where the Jews sacrificed to, their, to, to God. And he goes like, well, it's not big enough. And it's not good enough. We need, I need to make it bigger. So he decides like, okay, let's make this place bigger. But it was hard to do. So he had to actually add to the land around the temple mount, around the land of the temple to make it bigger. And so... He took these stones that were cut about three miles away. These stones were like 50 tons, 80 tons. And each one was cut for a specific spot. Even to this day, you you can't take a piece of paper and slide it between the stones. 
There's a stone in there on the western wall that they estimated it weighs 570 tons. Our shipbuilding equipment today can maybe the only thing can move something like that. And somehow Herod, in his brilliance, figured out how to move a stone that's 570 tons. Then there's this place called Masada. It's a fortress. And if Herod has spent any time there at this fortress, like if they get attacked, it's the place that he would escape to. He's like, it better be nice. It's in the middle of a desert, up high. And he goes, well, if I'm going to live here, since I'm going to be nice, I need a pool. Okay, it's in the middle of the desert. It rains like one to two inches a year, and that is it. So Herod goes, okay, well, I need water. So he starts creating these cisterns that will house a ton of water. And so what happens about every five years or so in the desert is like a flash flood. And so he's like, okay, if I can capture this flash flood, I can fill up all my cisterns and have water. And so he basically transforms the wilderness, capture all these flash floods to fill up his cisterns. So, for one, they have water during if there's something going on, but also because he has to have his pool. And you can find out there's a theme if you look through all of Herod's palaces, like a pool was a big deal to him. Like, he's amazing air engineering. Like, he's like, he looks at things and like, I want this, I'm going to figure out, and I'm going to make it happen. So there's a place called Herodium. We can bring a map up. And this is what we want to talk about today, because it actually has a lot to do with this story. So the Herodium was about eight, nine miles south of Jerusalem. And you see a little town in between Herodium, Bethlehem? This little, small, little town. So go to the next picture. So this is where the Herodium was on top of this mountain. Except for, the thing is, there was no mountain there at the time. There was a little hill. And the architectures come back to Herod and say, I know you want to build this amazing palace up high so everybody can see you, but this little hill is not going to do it. And Herod goes, huh, well, there's another hill over here. Why don't we just add this hill to this hill and make a mountain? Remember when Jesus said, like, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain? What mountain is Jesus looking at when he says this? Probably this one. So they took a hill and added it to another hill and made this huge mountain. So on top of it, you can go to the next picture, is he created his palace. So his palace, there's like amazing gardens, there's rooms for his guests, all these things. Like to the south of it is a place where they found Herod's tomb. They didn't find it until like 2007. But it's estimated that he spent like 90% of his life or his time as king uh, here at this palace. Uh, to the right, you can't really see it, but there's actually a pool Herod builds pools, because pools show how extravagant he is. And this pool is like 210 feet long, 9 feet deep. Um, since there's not a lot of water in the area, it's not like people swam. And most people didn't know how to swim. And there's this gazebo in the middle of this pool. And so like, if you want to, oh, I'm going to take a nice like, uh, picnic, lunch. They had a boat in there that would take you from one edge, the edge of the pool into the gazebo. Like, just extravagant. But where was this at? It was about three miles south of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town of maybe 500 to 1,000 people, maybe at most 2,000 people. And this is where Jesus is born. Just kind of contrast this idea that you have this man-made mountain with this amazing palace, with gardens, every amenity that you'd want of the day, a pool, 
And where was Jesus born? In a major, pretty much like a cave. This is the world that he was born into. So I talked about Herod's brilliance. As an architect, he was a genius. But Herod had another side to him. It's like in, when he was in the military campaign, he was known for being brutal, and that did not change. So, for instance, so Herod had his favorite wife. He had like 10 wives, and his favorite one. His wife comes to him and was like, hey, would you make my brother high priest? For one, that should never have happened. Herod should never have had the power to make someone a high priest. But he did. However, he actually didn't like this guy being the high priest. And so, guess what he did? There was an accident, a drowning accident that happened in Herod's pool. Herod killed him off. The same favorite wife of his, there was rumors about her maybe having an affair. And so, what did Herod do? He had his wife killed. There's uh, stories of Herod in his palace after he had killed his wife that he would ask his servants and go, hey, where is my wife at? Go find my wife. She's already dead. She's already dead. And they would come back to report and say, hey, we can't find her. And so he beat and tortured his servants for something that he already did. He was brutal. He had three sons. Well, he had about 15 sons. There's three of them that should have rose into power after he had died. But he wasn't ready for them to take any power yet. So what he did, he just had him killed. Caesar Augustus goes, it's better to be a pig of Herod's than it is to be a son of Herod's. Like, that's how bad it was. So when you look at this idea of a king, the king of the Jews, it's Herod. Now we have this Messiah also being referred to as king of the Jews coming. What do you think is going to happen there? How do you think Herod's going to react? Herod is losing control, or he has the potential to lose control. So let's uh, go to the Matthew um, chapter 2 there, that first, the next slide. So when the Magi came, what did they ask him? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? How do you think Herod responded to that? Like, uh, excuse me, uh, I am king of the Jews? What are you talking about? The one who's to come? No, I am king of the Jews. Control, power. Okay, so Herod knew that the people hated him. So Herod gave his wealth by kind of two ways. So one, he controlled the spice trade. Uh, Gary was telling me, it's almost like the idea if one person controlled all the oil in the Middle East... Like, how wealthy would you become? Herod is probably, if not, the richest person has ever lived. Like, they were having problems funding the Olympics at the time, because the Romans still had the Olympics. And he's like, no, I'll just pay for it. All these building campaigns, building this harbor, the temple, I'll pay for it. However, it doesn't just come from the money made from the spice trade, it also came from taxes. He burdened his people with immense amount of taxes. And they hated him for it. 
Like they even talked about the poverty of that day was created because of his taxes on his people. What type of king do you want in your life? So he knew that people hated him. But also, so he wanted, when he was going to die, he's looking towards like, okay, at some point I'm going to die. I want people to mourn for me. But I know they won't mourn for me because they'll probably rejoice that I'm gone because I have been so brutal to everybody. And so he had a plan to get 2,000 Jewish nobles, probably people in good standing, and collect them together, and at the time of his death is to kill those 2,000 men. Because he wanted people to mourn after he died. And so, yes, the people would mourn because they're mourning for these 2,000 people, but he's accepted as his own. Luckily, the person in charge of that did not make that happen after Herod died. But this is the type of person that he was. So, I think Gary, as he pointed last week towards Mary, is that there's something that we identify with Mary. I think we identify with, as we read stories, we identify with people in the story. But I also want to say that maybe we identify also with Herod in some way. Maybe not as brutal, maybe not as controlling. But the idea is, though, is that we do want control. This Christmas season, we talk about peace a lot. Like peace in the world, peace to all mankind. And where do we get peace? Well, from the true king, the Messiah. But however, though, is because sometimes we are like Herod. We want to like, have peace the way that we want peace. We want control the way that we want control. Now think of it, the things in your life, as they're starting to feel like they're falling apart, what do you do? You grasp onto it. Because we desperately want control of our life. However, that usually looks like not us changing ourselves, but trying to control every circumstance around us. And some of you probably know that. Imagine some of you grew up in a family that was very controlling. In a household that was very controlling. Like, your parents try to control the world around them to create peace in the home by controlling everything. We have a habit of doing that ourselves. Because we usually don't say to the idea of, okay, when you pray and you want peace, a lot of times when you're, like, something is like, bothering some person, what do you pray? You pray that God can change them, right? We've all prayed that. Like, if you're praying, like, someone that's a family member or a spouse, someone like, oh, God, we show up and change this person because this person is affecting my peace. Think of the Jews at this time. They had King Herod that was controlling them. Rome was conquering them. They were being put into poverty. And it goes with the idea of, okay, like, I want a new Messiah. I need a Messiah. I want something to bring me peace. But how do you think that looked? Well, could you bring me a king that looks like these, all these other kings of the world? This is how I want to see peace. That you would push them out like a military campaign and remove them so I can have peace. But the Messiah didn't step into the world that way. It says like in John that they rec- the, the, his own did not recognize the light. And sometimes in our own lives, what we want, how we want peace, isn't the way that Jesus wants it for us. 
This is why I think the Christmas season is so important. Because it's supposed to be a season about looking at peace. But peace in the way that Jesus brought it. Not how we see that God should show up in our lives and change those around us, change the world around us to have a peace. That in the middle of all of our hard circumstances, because I know some of you guys are going through some horrible, devastating things in your life right now. Wouldn't it be nice to have peace in those areas? It's hard sometimes because peace comes from a different way. It's not always changing the circumstances. So I look at the idea of peace. So one area when we want control, we can get very defensive. So it is trying to control around each other. You can also say, like, if you look at the world today, it's like, hey, if these people were in power, my life would be better. If these other people had more power, my life would be better, better. This area of control, what it does is separates us from others. And to see in our world how hard it is for some people that disagree on a certain topic, they can't have any sort of relationship. Because they don't fit into that person's idea of what life should look like, so they're pushed out. Another area of control that pops up is that fear wins over. Let me be honest, like, as we're looking for a, a lead pastor, a new senior pastor, like, there's a part of it that scares me. Like, I'm going to bring this person in that's going to lead our church. And I was talking with my dad and kind of structure of how things are going, and there's a piece of me that the fear rose up of, like, I need more control because I want to make sure it goes right. I love the idea that we have, like, six of these guys are stepping up and be able to, like, okay, do I trust them? Do I trust that God has someone in mind for this church? Because I really would like to do is just figure it out all myself and find the person myself and say, oh, okay, here, this is the person I like, so now this is the right person. No, it comes out of a place of fear. And it's good to recognize, you think of someone like Herod. Man, that guy must have been controlled by fear all the time. Anybody that stood up to him, he killed off. Like, he became so paranoid, and that's one thing he's known for, is being paranoid. Like, you would not want to step on his shoes. They talked about, when, uh, in Matthew 2 there, when he was disturbed, he said all the people in Jerusalem were disturbed. Well, he's probably talking about those of his people that are called Herodians, the people that follow him, and they made wealth off of his brutality in the way that he controlled everything. Of course it disturbed them. They're going to lose their place in the world. They're going to lose probably their financial gain that they have going on. This is where it's, we have to be careful when we look at the story of like, oh, I'm not like him. I'm not going to acknowledge that there's a piece of me like him, because we do. We need to acknowledge that, because all of us want some control in our life. But if we choose to call ourselves followers of Christ, we do not become kings of our own life, how we want to see the world form around us. But we bow down to the king Jesus, the true king of the Jews. It's really sad. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that as Herod talked to the Magi, and he knew that the Messiah was coming, 
He knew this king was coming. It's where he, the king was at. That he was so scared of him losing that he's willing to like murder off these babies, these toddlers. It's not the best part of the Christmas story, is it? But because of Herod's reaction to this fear, knowing that the Messiah that was foretold is coming, his choice became, well, I don't want that because that affects my life. It affects my power. It affects my control. In a moment, we're going to have a kind of time of reflection before we do take communion. But in this time of reflection, part of what I want you to do is like realize, hey, Lord, in my life, have I let fear control, control me? Because we look at how Christ came to the world. He came to not condemn the world, but to save the world. Where he could have come like a king of power and might in how we view it as military as govern, as government, all those sort of things. But it's not how you choose. He came as a servant. Came as a baby, born in Bethlehem, basically in the shadow of the Herodium itself, to serve and love and end up dying for us. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.